You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How are you? You know, couldn't be better. How about you? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, in case there's somebody who doesn't know who we are, I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You're Paul Bloom, famous psychologist, famous writer, publisher of the falsely modest Substack newsletter letter, Small Potatoes. You know, uh, I, did, um, I, I did a little thing on implicit bias, and somebody got angry about what I said, and this is on, <clears throat> on Twitter, and they said something like, why should I care what a, a Substacker has to say? Whoa. And for me, that was that was quite a moment. I mean, I, I, I was no, I was I was touched. I'm a substacker. I haven't heard that term actually. I'm a, I'm proud to be a substacker. There are worse things. Well, you you're on. I, I I you are hard to pin down, and we could get to this, but but you are on you are on Patreon too. Not so much. The no. uh, the parrot room is uh, has closed its doors. Um, okay. So yeah. Uh, there is a non-zero foundation Patreon that people should feel free to funnel large sums of cash toward. Um, but, uh, but no, there's been some consolidation since uh, Mickey decided to uh, go on his uh, hiatus and uh, do whatever he's doing, the secret project he's doing. I hike the Adirondack trail. <laughs> he wishes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I got a feeling it's less fun than that. Um, see, uh, so what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? So it's been a month since we talked. We're having these every month. By the way, I should say, uh, I was realizing that my own newsletter is kind of modest in, in, I mean, non-zero. It's like, it's not nothing, right? That's what non-zero means. Not nothing. Yeah, I mean, there's no small potatoes in terms of self-deprecation. No, no small but, potatoes. No. Um, I remember you saying some to somebody, maybe it was me, that you have staunchly refused to use your last, play on words of your last name. Not true. My Twitter handle is Robert Writer. W-R-I-G-H-C-E-R. Get it? Yeah, okay, get I get it, it. Okay, never mind, never mind. I had a lot of respect for that, but... Uh, uh, yeah, well, sorry. Um, I'm saving no, mine up for I'm, one I'm, thing, which is when I write my autobiography, I'm going to call it Full Bloom. Yeah, that's that's good. I look forward good. to that. No, I, look I forward hope nobody to that. uses that. <laughs> um, so, you know, speaking of uh, of your self, high self-esteem, I mean, just uh, I'm inferring this from the fact that you think you're worthy of an autobiography. But um, speaking of that, uh, you wrote a piece in your newsletter called How to Give a Better Than Average Talk. Isn't it kind of presumptuous of you to, to think that you, we should all take guidance from you? Wait, I have a larger question. Are you turning into like a self-help guru? Oh, like, I wish. I wish. No? Uh, no. There's a little bit no. of that in your Small there's, Potatoes newsletter. There's a little bit of that. And um, and unfortunately, I think the, the self-help stuff gets a bit more pickup than than my more general musings. So maybe this will be a case of audience capture. Mm-hmm. But I think I, you know, I say this is not, I can't tell you how to give a great talk. I don't know how to give a great talk. I know some, some people who give great talks. Um, I was telling you before your, your Ted talk, I assign in my classes. 
That's and scary. Uh, I, I have a section on uh, on moral expansion, moral progress. And it's mm-hmm. an amazing TED talk, and it's very witty and successful. I, I I'd love to give a talk like that. I think I could. I think I could help people give a better and average talk, just because so many talks are so bad. At there least are, in the world, I mean, there are bad talks in the world. I've given some. That TED talk, you know, that was so long ago that it was the first year they put the videos online. That's how long ago that was. And so and so the the PowerPoint technology, I'm sure, is incredibly crude. And so is the preparation. Apparently, these days with TED Talks, they like march you through this elaborate yeah. preparation and coach you and make suggestions. And so there was none of that. I, I gave one in January. Um, it's TED Canada. It was in New uh-huh. York, but, but it fell, it fell under the, the structure of the standard TED Talk. So I had um, <clears throat> a, a coach who and really? we engineered everything practiced over and over again she guided me the slides were worked over legal check the slides fact checkers worked it through i practiced from multiple people and it was quite the thing she was great i mean i learned a lot about how to give a good talk but 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 it, it if 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 anything could be overproduced that was overproduced hmm. you know it's hard to get to get you to say anything negative about almost anything so I think we should take that very seriously. What you just said about the TED talks, I think we should get that out there. I, I don't. I don't want to piss off the TED people. Paul Bloom you know, slams yeah. TED talks. Paul yeah. Bloom has given his last TED talk. He's burned that bridge. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, it, and he went on principle would not take the MacArthur Genius Award even if offered. We we discussed the tragedy. It's shoes, last, it's last shoes tenure, everything. Now, that reminds me, speaking of you, I mean, it is, you are somebody who just doesn't talk shit about people, right? Not, not on a podcast where, where well, the, that's some of I mean. the said people could hear. We could get together for a beer and I'll talk shit about a lot of people. Right. But some of us have the bad judgment to talk shit publicly. You know, that could be said that that's the thing that needs to be explained. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, know, I'm a normal guy who's just basically cautious about, despite despite you trying to get me to say things. You also, relatedly, I think, spread credit around pretty generously. In fact, one of the one of the bullet points in your "How to Give a Not Bad Talk" is give credit to people in the audience. Interesting. That's pretty damn strategic. You don't say give credit to people who aren't in the audience. Oh, give, why, give why waste your time with that? Who are listening? And you, you know those other people who deserve the credit? Don't waste don't waste the currency on them. When they come to your talk, then it's when they get the credit. Yes. Okay. Um, it, it's something about academic vanity, and I, I've had this too, where somebody's talking about something which I've done work on. And basically I sit there and I'm you know strumming my fingers and say, when are they going to talk about me? When are they going to mention my work? When are they going to mention my work? Mm-hmm. And um, And when they do, okay, that's good. You like it. Yeah, Pe- I don't, people I don't like get it. much mentioning because I'm not in the economy of of the academic economy of mutual citation. It's really sad. Dale Carnegie, who was a great uh, self help writer, mm-hmm. said that the most wonderful sound for anybody is the sound of their own name. He was right about that. Wait, what was the name of his book? Uh, how to win how to friends, win friends and, influence and influence people. people. That was what a, it. What a great title, by the way. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you know, I can uh, see him like like arguing with that. How to win friends? Now, what about how to influence people? They're both. No, do both. I remember my older brother. I think somebody in my family. I think him saying, "Win friends." It's like I don't want to win friends. I just want to. I just want the people 
who should naturally be my friends to be my friends. I'm not going to go out and try to, you know, tactically secure strategic relationships. He was offended. That's the kind of family I was brought up in. Explains a lot. Explains why I talk shit yeah. about people and <laughs> yeah. have very few friends. You're not trying um, to, to win friends. I'm not trying to win friends. Fuck. But it. you are trying to influence people. I am. And that's, I guess I now realize for the first time, you really have to win friends to influence people. At least some. You know, I, 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 um, I teach a large intro psych course in the end of a class last semester, actually. A kid came up to me, perfectly young guy, and, and he, he wanted to talk to me privately. And he says that he actually is, finds it difficult to make friends, particularly to meet women, and wanted mm -hmm. to know if I had any advice on this. Now, I'm probably not the guy to ask. Like I'm, not, I did not have this this amazing dating history and everything. I've been very lucky, but but in in my marriage and all that. But yeah, not. But but he was very sincere and he wanted advice on what to read and what to think about. And and I ended up suggesting how to win friends and influence people. Hmm. Because it's been a long time since I read it, but I do remember it actually has some really good advice. Like basically variants of just listen to other people, take them seriously. Make them feel seen. Make them feel seen. That's a very modern way of putting it. Not in the way that women think my, men might want to see them, but in the, in the, no. in the deeper sense. No. Yeah. Yeah, that, see, yeah, already I'm, I'm, I, yeah, see, this is, I was bad at this. Um, yeah. David Brooks has a new book out that's about like how to talk to people kind of, or uh, about how to make that. them feel seen. That seems and nice. Yeah, no, I was not. Nobody's ever asked me for dating advice with good reason. One of the great tragedies of technological history is that my teen years preceded uh, the invention of the dating app. That's that's what we needed is to completely divorce my approach to women from actual human interaction. That I think that could have. That would have made a world of difference. Yeah, I, I have never in my life used a dating app, me not even. Way. Not even the sort of pre-Tinder ones like OkCupid okay, and stuff. Um, yeah, you know people use. Um, I will, however, I, I, you know, later on, if you want, I could give you my advice on how to give a talk. You I, seem I, to be I'm going to give a talk in ten days, and so that would help. Could, can you say? Soon. Could you say where? Could I say where? Or is it secret? Uh, no, it's not secret. It's going to be. Uh, I think the conference. It's an unusual conference. I mean, as you may or may not know, it's the 100th anniversary of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's coining of the term noosphere. Did you know that? <laughs> not only didn't I know that, but I don't even know the, know the word. Yeah, N-O-O-S-P-H-E-R-E. -E. You don't know that word? Noosphere? Oh, Paul, this is so disappointing. I feel I, feel I might be pranked and you just made up a word and... You want to see if, you, if, if I'm going to say, oh, oh yeah, I, now I know it. <laughs> that would be a good game. It'd be really funny. Because yeah. people would do it. People would do it. I was. I was oh, Noosphere. Oh, I didn't hear you. You mispronounced it. Now, yeah, no, I was once talking to an actual kind of Darwin scholar. He'd written a whole book on, I won't say what, but. Uh, and I was talking about Darwin. So wait, now I'm blanking on the guy who came up with the theory of natural selection, Wallace. Alfred Russell Wallace. Yeah. And I like got his name mixed up or something. And I and I just kind of knowingly referred to something like Russell Alfred or something, whatever it isn't. I, I'm not even sure it's Alfred. Whatever it isn't is what I said. Yeah. And he went, he went, 
and he was like, and he's like this accomplished scholar pretending he knew he clearly, it clearly didn't click with him. Right. He didn't, he didn't know I'd gotten it mixed up. Yeah. It was a completely yeah. alien name, but because I was looking at him, like he should know who it was. He played along. So all of us have imposter syndrome. We do. That's one takeaway. Well, um, maybe I'm going to get for the rest of my life emails from you, you moron. You don't know what the noosphere is. The noosphere. Uh, so it comes from the Greek nous, N-O-O-S. Although in Greek, apparently it's pronounced noose. Hmm. Uh, and some people pronounce it noosphere, but I think the official online automated pronunciation is noosphere. And it refers to kind of the emerging giant global brain, which J.R. Ah. Deschardins saw coming before many people. Um, the, you know, the way technologically interconnected human beings start to constitute a kind of global mind. He called it uh, the thinking envelope of the earth, a brain of brains and various other things. There's also a Russian guy named Vernatsky who was a geochemist and, and actually had written a book on the geosphere. No, on the biosphere. He'd written a book on the biosphere, although, and he was a contemporary of Teilhard's, uh, although he didn't coin that term. That term had been coined a little earlier. Uh, and the idea is you got the geosphere before life, then you got the biosphere, then the biosphere sprouts this kind of noosphere, this kind of uh, brain. So the whole system of life creates this planetary brain that should assume stewardship in theory. I mean, they didn't emphasize this. Yeah. Well, Teilhard, Teilhard kind of did. Um, they, they actually had very different conceptions. Uh, anyway, they were the two leading kind of popularizers, I would say, of the term noosphere. The two people who wrote about it uh, most seriously, and apparently Teilhard coined it. Uh, Vernatsky didn't claim he had. There's a there's a mathematician who conceivably may have. But um, so anyway, uh, it's funny. It was uh, Teilhard. I mean, what the hell? Let's talk about this. You asked. Yeah, it's very interesting. I wrote. I've written about him uh, in a couple of books, mainly in, in uh, Non-Zero. I think a little. I, I wrote about a little more in Three Scientists and Their Gods, which was written so long ago that I didn't even know if you were. Yeah, you were born, I guess, but just barely, probably. Um. The uh, so anyway, he was a Jesuit priest and a paleontologist who did significant scientific work, Teilhard de Chardin. And uh, uh, but he but he had this whole cosmic, uh, mystical theology that got him in trouble with the Catholic Church, so he didn't really publish while he was alive. And then he died, I mean, he published some, but like his book, The Phenomenon of Man, uh, which he had written in the 30s, I guess, at least the first draft, wasn't published until after his death. He died, I think, in 1955. And so, and it was all the rage. The book was all the rage. You know, the New York Times called it a great book and everything. And then Peter Medawar, the biologist you may have heard of, uh, yep. wrote this famous takedown of it. Uh, you know, not entirely unreasonably, because it was, it, it uh, Teilhard made the mistake of saying it was a work of science, but it was actually, there was actually a lot of metaphysical speculation and uh, mystical poetry and stuff. And, and you're sympathetic to some of his more controversial views about progress. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, hey, why don't I give my talk, Paul? <laughs> That's fine. I could critique it. <laughs> you could critique it. Maybe we should save that part. But yeah, I am. I mean, he he uh, he said, uh, first of all, evolution has he, he was 
he was one of the first to kind of the first, as far as I know, to kind of view evolution as a machine for generating complex forms of consciousness, because he, I think, rightly saw that there was in some sense a tendency to get more and more complex forms of life. Eventually, there's a kind of cerebral complexity, uh, which he called cerebrization, I think, maybe. Yeah, he, he was he was great at coining words. Um, and he saw that that, well, he had a, a quasi-panpsychist view of consciousness. Uh, but in any event, he saw that as entailing um, a growth of uh, consciousness. And of course, he was, you know, he was a Christian. So he saw all this as part of God's plan. But it was, it was very much an evolutionary theology. He, he was a paleontologist and uh, more or less a Darwinian. I mean, he certainly believed natural selection uh, played a role. I don't think he thought that was the only thing going on with evolution. But um, so, yeah, I think he's right about complexity growing. Uh, I mean, the most controversial, I, and I think he, I think he's right that, that given long enough, uh, you are not unlikely to get the giant global brain, you know, assuming you believe that, that given long enough, you were likely to get a species intelligent enough to launch technological evolution in the first place. Um, and yeah, my book in, in some way brings us back to your TED talk where, where you, you outlined an increase in complexity. I guess I did. I, I mean, yeah. it's been so long ago. That was like 2007. I mean, uh, so anyway, yeah, I mean, the most controversial thing that I think deserves more respect than it gets from Teilhard is that this, there may be a larger purpose unfolding through this process in some sense. Is that what you're going to be talking about? I'll mention that. Uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, th there's a version of of, of uh, a teleological view of this that I think uh, that is defensible, as you know, I mean, um, that, you know, uh, any physical system can have a purpose. And uh, I and you can argue about whether it shows signs of purpose. And I mean, <laughs> this is the whole fucking talk. Man. <laughs> no, it's not. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Oh, should we save this for there's going to be this time when the paywall comes down. Why don't you why don't you uh, I'll just say that my version of purpose is entirely consistent with a, a material scientific materialism okay. and leave it at that. I, why don't you talk about whatever you want now? Uh, you've got you could give me advice on my on my talk, like keep it shorter. Um, keep it shorter is always good advice. Keep that's it one of your bullet points is keep yeah. it shorter. Yeah. Shorter is well, better. Well, I was going to, yeah, I was going to, we could get to that. And I actually would get to purpose, which is mm -hmm. interesting. Um, and I think a lot more controversial than, than you're playing it. Oh, I think it's controversial, but that's almost entirely because people don't understand what you're saying. Okay, we could get to that. Yeah. But I was going to, I was going to shift gears to something I wanted to, to do for a while, which is, um, I'm a fan of uh, uh, Tyler Cowen's uh, podcast, mm -hmm. and occasionally he asks the guest, um, I'm I should have checked this, but he has some sort of phrase, your productivity function or something, but mm -hmm. basically how they work. Mm -hmm. And I'm always interested in how people in how people work, particularly people who who write. You, uh, you, you know, you, you, you're writing at least one book. You mm -hmm. have, uh, I don't know how you count the number of podcasts you're involved in. Um, you are writing a newsletter. So how do you work? Did you say you're a fan of Tyler Callens? Yeah. 
I don't think he listens to this podcast. So that was a wasted compliment, Paul. I mean, I know how your economy of compliments works. It's like if they're in the audience, yes. If not, don't waste your breath. You shouldn't have wasted your breath. I'm trying to win friends. And influence. Um, look, I think I've talked enough. I mean, I, I, we can get around to that. Uh, but I don't even accept your premise that I'm a particularly productive person. How many books have you written, Paul Bloom? Um, six. Okay. That's one more than me, I think. And that's on top of... Yeah, but Evolution, uh, of, God, uh, evolution of God is enormous. That counts as nine. Okay, so I've written 14. Great. But, <laughs> but, uh, you, this Look, is on top... If it's so uninteresting, just say it. Just say, say what your schedule is. We've, I spent so much time setting this up and everything, and you made fun of me for saying something nice about Callan. So just, just what, what's, your, what's your work schedule? Well, wait, could we just like swap? Could we do a little swapping here? And first, you tell us what your work schedule is, and then I'll tell you. What are you, a psychiatrist? I need you, a break. I got tired talking about the noosphere. It is. It is. It's a. It's yeah, a big thing. It's a big noosphere. thing. Um, I uh, I write in the mornings. I I when I wake up, I make myself a cup of coffee and mm -hmm. I sit by my computer and I try to write for an hour. <clears throat> and when I'm working on a book, it's an hour in my book. And now that I've been doing the Substack and really enjoying it, it's an hour in a Substack. And then if I could get a good hour done, I feel really great. And then everything else in my day is gravy. Um, I try to avoid doing emails and stuff like that. And then the other thing in, is... In the morning, you mean? In, in the morning. In the morning yeah. is, is when my mind, you know, it's the right level of arousal. It's, I'm not unusual in this way. I've read, I've seen books about productive people and just about most people do their best work in the mornings. And um, so I do that. And, um, and then my other thing is I kind of work all the time. like. I'm always I'm always on, you know, reading something or listening to something or, you know, talking to somebody about something. I I like I like my job, which is very weird, which is ultimately I just get to think about and talk about and write about fun things. So I just I, I don't do much else. Uh, you know, I you know, family and I read novels. And but if you lots. work all the time, I mean, how much time is there for family? Let's be honest. Like, do your sons now that they're grown come back and say, thanks for all the quality time, dad? It's um, it's um, what's that song? The sort of plaintive song about um, about um. Oh, it's 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 in my oh, head. Oh God, it's uh, Silver Spoon. Cats in the cradle. I can't know again. God damn it! It's Harry Chapin. But what's the song? It's Cats in the Cradle. Cats in the Cradle. Yeah, and it's about a man who knew. And then. It's and not then exactly he, he, a subtly delivered and, uh, message, and, I must and say. And it ends but, by the father calling the son, will he come over? And he says, you know, I'd love to dad, but a good job's a hassle and the kids are at school. Right. And and he realizes his boy grew up just like him. Just Yeah. In fact, so, so subtle is it that that's one of the lines. His dad was just like, his son was just like him. Like me, something. yeah. That's well, a line. To answer your question, um, about a little while ago, my younger son sang it to me over Zoom. Really? So, yeah, you know that song. He's, he's very self-aware. He's making making a point. But I, seriously, I actually seriously, whoa, 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 whoa! This is intense. Your son sang that song to you. Yeah, lyrics. A song that means you were a shitty father. I mean, let's yes. just translate yes. it for those for those the slower yes. students at home. Paul was I, a shitty father. I am going to write a Substack called "How to Be a Better and Average Father." <laughs> I no, we, we have such I, a good relationship. Sure you qualified, frankly, no, I actually, when Mike, I, I, 
I, I have done things poorly in my life. I've done significant things poorly in my life. Ah, I get along really well with my sons. And, mm-hmm. and I think they were just like fun to hang out with. Though if they're not listening, I shouldn't bother saying nice things about them. No, no, don't, don't waste it on. No, no. Yeah. Let's talk more um, about Tyler. So the significant things that you've done wrong, we'll say for after the paywall, is that it? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's real paywall okay. stuff. That's, that's other relationships. Um, so to recap first, you spend how many hours in the morning writing, actually writing? One. Just one? Often more, but I, but I push for one, yeah. But you're and, really focused for that one. You must be. Yeah. You get a lot know. done. Yeah. And then the rest of my day, I have this weird habit, which I've been mocked for, which is I have a timer and I tend to work in six minute bursts. So I could spend like three hours working six minute bursts. I go uh, six minutes, I work on a reference letter. Then I'm shifting to this paper I'm working on. And then I rush and stuff some clothes into the laundry. And then I go on Twitter for six minutes. And then I work on a Substack article for six minutes. And then time goes by. You have an actual timer? Yeah. So it goes beep. That was that six minutes. Got to move on to something else. Yep. What if what you're doing is going well? Like, what if you're focused? That's and- the, that is the perfect time to be interrupted from it. Because then when it cycles back and it's time to do it again, you just, you really hit it. You should really? always try to end things when you're like in the middle of something. That's and ironic. properly disciplined. It probably occurred the, to you that it's ironic to end things when you're in the middle of them. That's very, it's, it's a, I could try to be Zen myself. That's a little mm-hmm. koan. Cone? Mm-hmm. That could be a koan. Yeah. Koan, yeah. And end things in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. When I'm um, properly disciplined, I'll stop a word mid-word. Whoa, that's, that's good. That's, that's good. good. With Noah's sphere, it would be easy. But... Yeah. Okay. Um, so you, you've had your time to rest. What is uh, your productivity function? Well, first of all, it's a challenge. Because when I was in first grade, this is true. You know, we got these report cards and the and the comportment section. There was like that kind of academic grades part. I mean, I don't know how they were delivered. It wasn't like ABC. But anyway, there was the part like, you know, is considerate of others, blah, blah, blah. You know what? I got the worst grade, like lowest possible grade. Uh, not talking shit about other people. Exactly. No, yeah. I got it in uses time wisely. <laughs> I did. I did. And, and yeah. there's, re- there's a reason for that. It's, it's, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I have trouble focusing. Um, like, did you emerge from college lectures with coherent notes of the actual no. lecture? You didn't. No. Well, that's good. No, that's a good sign. No. Is that your answer? Uh, well, no, it's like, I, I, you know, I get up, I mean, I do a little stuff before my coffee. You, you do nothing before, you know, we, we could be reaching a, a higher level of detail than the average listener is interested in. Do you think? Not you. No, you haven't said anything. Yeah. Oh, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I, I get up, do some stuff. I meditate a little. Uh, and then I do, you know, I do what you do. I have coffee and I write, uh, it's, it goes on longer than an hour, but much less efficiently than, than, than yours does, I'm sure. And I'm kind of like you and that I'm, I'm kind of working yeah. pretty much all the time, except that sometimes I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another, another, uh, Cohen. The great, the, a great thing for me is, uh, the fact that since 1979, 
when the Walkman was invented, you've been able to, while exercising, listen to things. And uh, I've made use of that. I may, I actually make a lot of use of of that. Uh, you know, listen, you listen to, to books relevant. or podcasts or. Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to if I'm going to have a podcast conversation with somebody, uh, I may listen to uh, maybe some other podcast they've done or something. I listen to books. I'm listening to uh, uh, the the Sam Bankman Freed book by Michael Lewis just started. Uh, and um, but, you know, I've been it, it, we're both probably lucky in the sense that we pursue things we're genuinely. We write we write about things we're genuinely interested. Yeah, that's good fortune. What do you think of uh, the Michael Lewis book? Uh, I, first of all, he's so good at he. Yeah. he, he I, I I'm not aware of anyone whose writing is more consistently lively. There's yeah. just not not like a dead paragraph. It's just it's just there's a there's a kind of energy and low key comedy in in his observations. Um, which reflects his outlook on life. And Sam Sam Bankman Fried is perfect. Is perfect for for Michael's kind of. Uh, it, I've said this before. He's like it's a cynical view of life, but not a bitterly cynical view. He, he's he's cynical about humans, but he's just like it's all kind of a circus, and we're all these funny characters. Um, but Bankman Fried seems like any other. Uh, seems unlike any other. I mean, yeah. now now did you? I forget what exactly we said about him last time. What was your what? What's the the fifteen? Do you remember what ex part of your take you delivered last time? Because I've talked about him with a number of people. Yeah, I think the part I found most interesting about him is the story of I think his teenage years, where it was mm. very unusual upbringing. Right. I don't know if you made it that far into the book. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I, and, I now um, remember what you said. Yeah, yeah. But go ahead. I, and where he was um, raised by a, a very atheist family. Atheist is the wrong word. They just had no interest in traditions or rituals of any sort, like birthday parties. They just mm -hmm. didn't have them. Right. Uh, very, 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 very utilitarian. Literally, and, for one thing, yeah. And Bankman is obviously a tremendously smart kid. In some way, because of his upbringing, he was very naive. He describes, I forget the age, where he was shocked that people really believed in God. Because mm -hmm. he had never, you know, his parents didn't. And, and uh, he was just amazed that people could. Right. And um, and he is grew up to be very, very unusual. I think he was by nature very unusual. He had a very unusual upbringing. And I think it's pretty clear that a lot of trouble he got into is a is a consequence of that. I know, by the way, that of all the books, Michael Lewis, Michael Lewis tends to be a beloved figure. I don't know. You, you probably know him personally because, you know, everybody. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but I do but, know him. But, but people are um, are people seem not to like the book. And I think. They felt he was he was too sympathetic to mm -hmm. Bankman Fried. He drank the Kool Aid. He was too sympathetic. He was too uh, too charmed by by the kid's weirdness. And um, and this is the first of his books where I've seen people sort of turn against it. Although I don't think it was so much a result of reading the book. I think he got quoted during yeah. the trial or at the beginning as saying, uh, you know, they some interviewer said to him, "So did he like steal? You know, did he steal money?" And Michael says, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think so, kind of. And and the point is, this is not a, a, a Bernie Madoff kind of thing. That's right. It, it's 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 different. And in fact, um, in 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 uh, listening to what I've listened to so far, I mean, one thing that comes through 
uh, is, I mean, he is, first of all, he's a very unusual guy. Does Michael say explicitly anywhere in the book that he's been diagnosed as on the spectrum or anything? I mean, he has some of the hallmarks, right? I think he does discuss that. I don't, rem- I don't remember exactly uh, but, where but, he, but, cer- um, he certainly has the hallmarks. So, he, so des- he describes, he describes himself as consciously learning how to deal with other people. Right. He has to learn that you have to smile in certain situations. Well, I haven't learned that. So that's That's right. He did this thing on on, on how he had to train his facial expressions because he was thinking, well, I just tell people what I feel. Why do I need facial expressions? But right. And he's just uh, anything that's not rational kind of mystifies him. Rational and a kind of uh, objectively analyzable way. Like one thing I have in common with him is he doesn't like get like English class, the idea of, but, but I mean, there's something I kind of struggle yeah. with is, is like, you're supposed to write this essay and what there's a right and a wrong. I mean, you know, there's no objective metric for, 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 uh, you know, in other words, essays about novels are just opinions and he just couldn't understand getting graded, uh, on an opinion. Anyway, he, um, I, I think the one theme that, that comes through early is he seems to be just kind of blithely indifferent to the consequences uh, of his behavior for other people. It's not that he's inconsiderate in the traditional sense, right? I mean, the way Michael depicts him and I don't know, maybe he's, uh, uh, I don't think it's a caricature. I mean, I, I, I think this is the way he is. He's just, it just doesn't occur to him to ask whether um like what's her name uh the fashion the world's most famous uh, fashion Anna, Anna Winter Anna Winter um whether if you tell her you will be at the Met Gala and maybe pay for it and then you cancel not long I don't know how long in advance yeah. like that that's going to be a problem for her on the other <laughs> hand so you know as you know, Lewis described this wonderful scene where he's talking to her, but also playing this very complicated video game at the same time and oh, yeah. trying to allocate his attention. But in in his in Bankman Free's defense, he realized that if he told her he would come and he would pay for it, it would make her happy. He says, I'm going to say this and that will make her happy. And yeah. I can focus on my game a bit. It's but strange. The- yeah, he's. Uh, it's, I haven't yet figured him. I mean, it's a fascinating psychological portrait that's starting to emerge, but I I'm only into the kind of, uh, the second chapter, but anyway, I mean, I, I guess maybe the way Michael looks at it is it was, he was just in the habit of going through life, uh, you know, to his own rhythm and letting other people clean up the mess and, and not, uh, and and that that's what happened. It, it, it wasn't like, yeah, okay, at this point I'm violating the law. It was just like, uh, you know, not thinking about the potential long term consequences of of uh, getting as leveraged as he let himself get. I mean, he let himself get into a, a, a position that was very vulnerable uh, to you know a downturn in crypto. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I I read his book, Mike Lewis's book, right after I read Walter Isaacson's book on Elon Musk. <clears throat> uh-huh. And and there are similarities. So one is what you mentioned, which is Elon Musk could also be incredibly cruel to people around him or indifferent to their suffering. Yeah. Um, and then the second one is, I got the sense that neither, neither of the two men care much about money. You know, Musk, hmm. 
wants to make an enormous amount of money because he wants to save civilization and make us an interplanetary species and so on. But but the money is a means to an end. And I felt Bankman-Fried also saw the money largely as a means to various ends. Well, they also both, um, I mean, first of all, Musk says he was on the spectrum. He yeah. couldn't, and he couldn't pick up sarcasm and stuff. And 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 he he depicts himself as 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 actively bullied. The picture of SBF is that other kids thought he was weird, but he wasn't working that hard to be accepted anyway. And so he was just in his own world. He, yeah. he, uh, it must have hurt a little, and you get the sense that it did. But like beginning at age 12, he discovered fantasy video games and he was just gone. That was his world. Um, but uh, yeah, the other thing they have in common is, I don't know if you could call it a messiah complex in both cases. I mean, it's funny. Musk seems more doesn't he seem more obviously narcissistic to you than SBF? Yeah, I think so. I um, think so. I think SBF is more extreme in his pathologies and his withdrawal and his social problems. And kind of more unusual, right? Yeah. I mean, Musk is an easier more, diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think, I think Musk could, could turn on the charm. I think Musk can you know, keep maintain relationships of different sorts and so on. And as SBF is just from, from Mars. Yeah. I mean, he must've been loving it at some level. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's just so weird though. He paid Tom Brady and his wife. Is it just Giselle? Wait, what is her name? Anyway, she's no longer his wife. So I guess I won't bother to try to find, remember what her name is, but he paid them a total of I think um either 65 or 75 million dollars um to commit to spend 20 hours 20 yeah. hours of their time over like the next couple of years according to to Michael I think like there was a zoom call they had to do and something like that yeah and I mean there there was an ad I think there was an ad for the crypto but uh I guess but uh I don't know like what's what's going on there I don't know it's it's kind of uh, mystifying. Uh, one question is, with somebody like that, can we blame the parents? I mean, it would be tempting to say there was some kind of lapse in upbringing, like, like maybe they should have more often said, Sam, think about the consequences of what you're doing right now for whoever's going to have to deal with this. I mean, there must have been things in his childhood, right, that... I, I don't know. I mean, in some sense, you can blame the parents because... To the extent that that the way he was is genetic, is heritable. You blame them for for giving them him that whatever combination of genes that made him what he is. But unlike Elon Musk, where you could kind of draw a straight line from the horrific treatment he got from his father to a lot of his subsequent behavior, I'm not sure. I think his yeah. parents were were oddballs or are oddballs, but they seem they seem loving. They yeah. seem they seemed fine. I'm really against the I, I sometimes parents should be blamed, but the mm -hmm. actual evidence that bad parenting and I don't think there was bad parenting there, but even if it was bad parenting leads to bad kids is surprisingly slim. It's very yeah. intuitive that it is. But, you know, all the behavioral genetic studies and everything suggest that it's, you know, half of its genes and half of it is nobody knows what the fuck it is. Yeah. But parenting, um, not so much. Yeah, no, I know the uh, I forget the name of the lady who wrote the book. Uh, no Judith Rich Harris. Yeah, she's no longer alive. Um, but she she wrote a book kind of 
and I thought she kind of overstated the case. She was very big on the genetics part of it, but it's it's true apparently that two siblings, if you look at the five, you would know more than I, but the five dimensions, the five kind of standard dimensions of personality as measured, um, the two siblings are almost as different on average as they would be from a randomly selected member of the population or something. Isn't that the finding? Have you? I think, I think the main finding is siblings are a lot alike because they're, they share 50% of their genes. But if you take two siblings and raise them in the same family versus you take two siblings and you split them and one's in one family, one's adopted in a different family, it doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. So yeah. it's true that bookish parents have bookish kids and violent parents have violent kids and, you know, correlation is pretty strong for all of these things. But it seems to be transmitted through the genes, not how kids are raised. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, no, it's certainly true that, you, you know, as you and I both would say, as veteran parents who want to evade responsibility for anything bad our kids ever do, um, there's a limited amount of predictable control you have, which isn't yeah. to say you don't, in, you're not in principle, if you knew all the rules and, you know, uh, if you're omniscient, um, but uh, there's a limited amount. No. And and to their credit, Michael says they didn't care about money. And that's a big difference yeah. between his parents and Musk. Musk's father was your classic. It's like Trump's father, your classic, you know, creepy, uh, domineering, materialistic pig, it sounds like. I don't yeah. want to read too much into it, but. Well, um, I mean, if, if we're going to say bad things about him, he did have two children with one of his stepdaughters. That's yeah. I always, I say, stop at one. I, I just <laughs> yeah, call me old fashioned. That, that crosses call the me line. Old fashioned, it? But um, yeah, um, that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's more than Woody Allen did actually. Uh, Cause I think anyway. Yeah. So here's the thing, you know, we have this paywall that comes down at some point. Is this the point? I mean, do you think we've, we've, uh, they're just enthralled? I think they're, I think this the money's going to start rolling in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the way um, they can get to the rest of this conversation, one way is to become a paid subscriber, non-zero newsletter. Failing that, you could become an unpaid subscriber. And of course, there's a small potatoes newsletter. You know, uh, you don't have a paywall yet, but you realize no. when you do have a, when you do uh, develop a paywall, you could put these podcasts on your newsletter as well. And then we That's, would be saying, and then we would be saying there are two ways to get this. One, then we'll be 20 minutes in and I'm going to be saying, Bob, we got to move to the. To yeah. Page you're going to be pushing for an earlier paywall at that point. Yeah. That's right. There's the, the financial pressures. So, I, I see a fork in the road here. I was going to ask you, there were some discussions about foreign policy we could talk about. We can go into the, whether the universe has a purpose. I'm always happy to explain that. Okay, good. Um, also, you recommended books on uh, good and evil or on evil. Yeah. I want to talk about a couple of them. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, what were your other small potatoes? Not so small potatoes. There's something that's, well, there was, yeah, there was that. That was your, that was in your newsletter. It seems like there was something else. We I could read something in, in the in defense of discouragement. 
I'm with you on that. We can talk about discouragement. All right, all right. Rap. You should always tell people they can't amount to anything in life. I always <laughs> that's say not that. exactly. That's you've overstated my case. And if I overlearn my lesson, usually you should usually. tell most people they'll never amount to anything in life. Um, and uh, what was that? Heard a strange beep. Um, and then yeah, I want to talk about yeah, a little. It's kind of foreign policy related. Certainly, psychology of tribalism related, and why there are wars related. Um, and, uh, and who knows what else, uh, I do need more tips on how to give a good talk. Uh, and, uh, and so we will, uh, and by the way, uh, you can, uh, the way you, you, you get to be a paid subscriber is you can Google non-zero and Substack or click the link in your, uh, in the show notes of your app. And then, uh, whenever there's a moment like this in a podcast, which there usually are on my podcast, um, you won't have to worry that you're about to be excluded. Right? And I, I just don't have it down yet, right? I mean, Dale Carnegie, Carnegie would do a better job of this. Yeah, you're you're influencing people. Winning yeah, friends, I, I don't know. Not in the way I want, though, right? Yeah. Okay, well, well, so, well okay. influences, some is better than none. Okay, so uh, thank you to everybody who's been listening so far. Paul and I will be back uh, in a month. Um, and uh, now we head into overtime.